You're listening to audio from City Light South Church. If you'd like to check out more resources and find ways to get involved, go to citylightsouth.org.au. If you have your Bible, open up to Matthew chapter 5. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, just following the Beatitudes. So we're just going to start being verses 13 to 16, just four uh, verses this morning. Um, last week, we looked at the Beatitudes, which is a list of seven attributes and one attitude uh, for every single Christian, every single follower of Jesus. Things like being humble, poor in spirit, merciful, peacemakers, people who hunger for righteousness. It's a description, as I said last week, of who we are when we we're saved by Jesus, but also who we aspire to be, who we, who we get to be, who we are attempting to be in his strength. Um, so now we're going to sort of transition from, well, this is who we are, to now, this week, this is our function or our purpose in the world. There's a question that people ask uh, from time to time on the topic of Jesus and religion, and they ask, is it good for the world? Is religion good for the world? Is Christianity specifically good for the world. If you've been following the news lately, even this week, there's been a lot of talk about this very issue here in Australia. This, just this week, up in Canberra, they've been debating back and forth the so-called religious discrimination bill. And at the heart of this debate are questions about what roles Christians should play and shouldn't play in our society. So, for example, is it necessary for Christian schools to exist and remain distinctively and exclusively Christian, even if the cost of doing so means that some people might be hurt along the way? Or is Christian faith simply meant to be something that is kept private, kept to yourself and out of the public spotlight, away from politics, away from children, away from public money? These are important questions for us to think about as a society Especially now, given that less than 50% of Australians would self-identify as Christian in any way. That's down from about 90% just a few decades ago. So is this a good thing or a bad thing? Well, it depends on who you ask. Um, Jesus, though, was not neutral on this question. He had an answer as to the question of, are Christians good for the world? He answers it straight up, right here in the Sermon on the Mount. He says unequivocally, Unequivocally, yes, Christians are good for the world. In fact, a world or even a, a local community without Christian presence, with fewer or no Christians, is a far less desirable place to live. It's a far less hospitable place to live. But when Jesus says that Christians are, in fact, good for the world, he assumes and he also demands that we as Christians are living as Christians different from the world. And in so doing, we do good for the world through our being, through our doing, through our speaking. That's what we're talking about today. And there's, there's an obvious tension here, I think. The tension is that Christians are not going to be seen by much of the world as good. They're not going to be seen as doing good. More and more uh, these days, what used to be taken for granted as, as basic truth, as basic good and evil, is now not taken for granted anymore. People have questions and different ideas. And some of those painful conversations in our society revolve around these changing understandings of what is and isn't good. 
For example, who is it that gets to tell you or me or anybody what they can and cannot do with their own bodies? That's a question that we struggle with as people. More people these days, even, even Christians, are answering that question very differently than, say, 50 years ago and very differently to what the Bible would say about that question. But despite that, Jesus, here in the Sermon on the Mount, um, says that Christians in the world is a good thing for the world and that Christians can and must do good in the world. Now, I'm going to pray, and then I'll read the, the text for uh, today, and then we'll, we'll get stuck into it. So just join me. Um, Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for your truth. We thank you that we can come to you and know that your word is living, is alive, is active in us, in our midst. So Lord, help us to be inclined to hear your word, to understand it, to believe it, and then to obey it. Lord, we, we don't want to just be hearers only of your word. We want to be doers of your word. So God, help us in the strength that your spirit gives um, to, to, to be changed and to do your word um, with joy. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. I'm reading from the CSB. You are salt, or the, the salt of the earth. But if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's God's word for us this morning. All right. There are two elements, if you like, um, that Jesus compares us Christians to in this passage, salt and light. I'm sure you've heard that before. You've heard the call for Christians to be salt and light. We've talked about it already a lot this morning. Um, I said last week that uh, these, the words of these, the sermon have shaped not only us as Christians, but really even the English language has been shaped by these words. We, we, we have the expression, to be the salt of the earth, which comes from Jesus' own words, but we use it far and wide, not just in a Christian context today. So a person who is the salt of the earth is a person who's reliable and trustworthy and decent and down to earth. Um, to be a light shining in the world. You know, you, we, we talk about this all the time, just outside of the Christian context. Oh, that person just really shines. That person is just a light. People want to, are drawn to them because of their example. Um, but what did Jesus mean by these terms? And what, if anything, is distinctively Christian about being salt and light? Well, let's start with salt. It's one of the most basic elements on earth. Leah gave us a good um, uh, description of all the various uses of salt, both historically and uh, today. Um, for those of us who are a bit older, and I put myself in that category, salt can get a bad rap uh, from time to time, you know, high blood pressure and all that. Um, but I learned fairly recently uh, that uh, your body actually needs Salt, well, sodium specifically, um, to function properly. Without sodium in your blood, your brain actually shuts down. You will not live. Um, and in the days of Jesus, before they had electricity and refrigerators, salt was absolutely vital for life. It was vital to keep food fresh and from going off and poisoning people. 
Salt's a preservative, as Leah mentioned. Uh, today, it's the main ingredient, saline, which is one of the most important things that we use in medicine to minimize infection. Um, by and large, salt is a good and necessary thing. Without it, we'd see more disease, more decay, more dehydration, and a whole bunch of kids whinging to their parents about eating vegetables. Kids and grown men, actually. Um, I don't know if you have, who are the picky eaters in your life? They're probably, probably more male, I think. Um, this is my experience. So when Jesus says to you and me um, that you are the salt of the earth, he's saying that you are good. You are necessary for human flourishing, not just in general, but in very specific ways that make a difference for the people around you. Now, if you're much into cooking, well, you don't really have to be much into cooking, but you know that just a little bit of salt uh, can go a long way. Um, and I say that not to say we want fewer Christians in the world, but to remind us that the, when Jesus says you're the salt of the earth, he's not putting this enormous pressure on you to be absolutely on your game and 100% perfect all of the time. Just a little bit of salt goes a long way. Even a handful of people who are attempting to live out the blessed life that we talked about last week is good for the world. Is very good for the world. People who are, with the Lord's help, attempting to be poor in spirit, pure in heart, merciful, humble, peacemakers, acknowledging when we fall short, walking in repentance, depending on the Spirit. This is a good thing, and it will make a world of difference. Let me think of a couple of examples. Um, I'll start far away, and then I'll move closer to home. In 2017, um, a, or sorry, 2012, a sociologist called uh, Robert Woodbury published a study called The Missionary Roots of Liberal Democracy. And he, in the study, he had conducted a series of studies in several different countries uh, in the developing world that had had different experiences of Western European missionaries uh, and colonization. Uh, he looked at missionary activity in each country. So was it Catholic? Was it Protestant? Was it mainly focused on social reform, uh, such as building schools and hospitals? Uh, or was it mainly focused on the preaching of the gospel and converting local people uh, to Christianity? His, the results of this study, the conclusion was very interesting because it goes against, I think, some conventional wisdom in the world today. His conclusion was that the countries and the places where Protestant missionaries were most focused on preaching the gospel and seeing people repent and believe, that those same countries today are in fact noticeably healthier, more prosperous, and have more highly functioning democracies compared to places where the missionaries were absent or focused on other things. In other words, Places that had a large presence of people preaching the gospel had a great benefit for the people of those places that we can actually measure today. Now, he admits there are plenty of examples of bad things done by missionaries. Um, there are plenty of examples of sinful, even racist missionaries that we lament um, as a church so you might expect that because of the presence of hypocrisy, it would mean that missions would have had a negative impact on those societies. But in fact, the research shows the opposite. Why? Because I think as Jesus taught, 
simply by being Christians, even imperfect people, walking in repentance, pointing people to Jesus, that is a good thing for the world and has measurable effects. Now let's look a bit closer to home. I know we can stumble over the steady stream of hypocrisy stories, and there's a lot out there of broken, even wicked people in the church. I I, I would say that there are probably some of you in here who have experienced that firsthand and have suffered uh, as a result. It's, It's devastating. But we know that when a person is transformed by the Spirit, that they are still wrestling with sin. And it takes time for people who are dead in sin to become walking blessings, to consistently live out the blessed life. But I I don't know about you, but I've seen it happen in real time. People who were angry becoming gentle. People who were arrogant becoming humble servants. People who were debroken being set free and restored. Nobody is born the salt of the earth. Jesus makes you the salt of the earth. And when he does, this is good news for your family. It's good news for the people you work with. It's good news for your neighbors. And it's even good news for the whole world. Now, let me talk for a minute about the salt that goes bad. Okay, because Jesus mentions a salt that loses its savor, its saltiness, its taste, depending on your translation. It's a bit of a funny one because if if you have actually much familiarity with salt, you know that salt is pretty stable as a chemical compound. It's not really a thing for salt to go off. It will keep for a very long time, hence it being used as a preservative. Um, So what does Jesus mean when he talks about salt losing its saltiness? That it's so bad, it's so worthless, so you just throw it out on the rubbish pile. Um, So... Here's the best explanation that I've found. There's a few thoughts and theories on this out there, but here's the best one. In Jesus' day, when they mined salt from the earth, it was almost never pure salt. It was often mixed uh, with other things. Um, One of the elements specifically that was often found and mined together with salt was gypsum, which which is where we get the term gyprock, right? So if you have ever tasted gyprock. I don't know why you would, but you would know that it's not particularly tasty. It's not something you would just add to your food, right? So what would happen, though, is that you can see a pile of salt and a pile of gypsum from the naked eye. You may not be able to tell the difference. Salt, sometimes, when you have a pile of it and you're using it for, for cooking, this, again, this is the explanation that I got, that it's slightly heavier than some of the other impurities that were in there. And so over time, the more salt you use, the less and less pure what's left becomes. And so eventually you get down to kind of the dregs, and it's no good, and, and, and you throw it out. That's kind of what Jesus meant when he talks about salt losing its saltiness. He's using a real-life example from the real world. So what is he actually compare? What is he describing, though, in the life of us Christians, in the life of the church? What he's saying is that sometimes it is possible for people to look Christian f- from a distance. Perhaps they identify as Christian. Uh, perhaps they have on Christian clothing. Perhaps they belong to a Christian church or a Christian organization. But up close, their lives may not have the full-bodied character of Jesus. Maybe that's because they're not actually Christians. 
They're, they're, they're unconverted. They're unbelieving. They never embrace the call to follow Jesus by denying themselves and carrying a cross. Um, it is possible, particularly in places like Australia, um, to embrace Christian culture, Christian language, um, without embracing Christ. It is it's possible, and we know that. We've experienced that. Um, it's possible for that to then make Jesus look quite bad, worthless even, to the watching world. But then is it possible for Christians, actual Christians, actually converted people, to become unsalty? Um, I think there are moments where, yes, it is possible for us to fail, for us to sin, uh, quite spectacularly even. But if you are a Christian, then you have the Spirit of Christ in you. And that will not be the perpetual state of being. You, he will be busy convicting us of sin, of our fallen shortness. And we will, like we talked about last week, begin hungering and thirsting for righteousness so that once again we are salty. We need these regular wake-up calls in our lives to live intentionally, to live intentionally as disciples, to make him look big in the world and with the people in our lives. We need this gracious motivation to obey the commands of Christ, not to retreat from the world because, oh, they might see our imperfection, but to live joyfully different from the world, walking in open repentance and transparency. That's what it means to be the salt of the earth. Christians who are striving intentionally to become like Jesus, no matter what anyone else says, are good for the world. Good for your family members who don't believe good for your neighbors and your workmates, good for the world. Lord willing, if you have someone in your life that you are hoping and praying will come to believe, the more you continue to live out this daily salt of the earth, blessed life, you will, by God's grace, live to see that dead soul raised to life, that discouraged soul filled with hope, Christians like you, specifically, are good for the people in your world. Now, the second comparison Jesus makes here is to another basic element. Christians are salt. We're also light, meaning that we are necessary for life to flourish. Without light, no plants can grow. Uh, without life, uh, light, we'd all be stumbling around in the dark. And, and so this is a call to embrace who you are as the light of the world. We ought to let that light shine, Jesus says, out in the open for other people to see, people who are trapped in darkness. Light isn't just who we Christians are. Light in the Bible is first associated with God. Now, I'm going to do a bit of rapid-fire Bible here, so sorry, not sorry for that, but here we go. Okay, where do we start with light in the Bible? Um, Genesis 1. God said, let there be light. Why? Because God himself is light. We get this 1 John 1 uh, verse 5 says, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light and there is absolutely no darkness in him. James describes God as the father of lights who does not change like shifting shadows. God is light, meaning he's completely pure and holy. He sees everything and we understand everything through him. Jesus made himself equal with God, specifically when he said what? He said, I am the light of the world. 
One of the main ministries of the Holy Spirit, we say, is to illuminate, to give lights to our minds, to our hearts, so that we understand his word. So we read in Psalm 119, verse 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. See, the moment you believed as a Christian, you are at that moment joined to Christ, the light of the world. His life becomes your life. His light becomes your light. His righteousness becomes your righteousness. Go back to where, um, to John 8, where Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And he says, I'm, I am God, essentially. Here's what he says right after that big reveal of who he is. He says, anyone who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Friends, if you're a disciple of Jesus, you have his light in you. It's who you are. It's, it, it affects how you see the world now, how you think about things. You have a wisdom that comes straight from the one who wrote the manual to everything. Um, the more we aspire to be the men and women that we already are in Christ, the light of the world, the more we start to desire to let go of sin and choose to walk in the light, to walk in obedience to Jesus and to his word every single day. And that becomes the proof that we have been cleansed, that we've been forgiven, that we have this growing desire and ability to obey, to live out the character of Christ that he just himself described in the Beatitudes. We get this again, 1 John. He says, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. You are the light of the world. Now, how does this actually work out in real life? Uh, the Bible tells us that when we shine as the light of the world, we are out in the open. We're not hidden away, but we're kind of like a million-watt bulb on the top of a tall building. Um, I don't know, that photo there, um, I don't know if you've ever made the drive to Port Augusta. That is the Port Augusta solar thermal plant or whatever you call it. Like, you can see that literally for like, a hundred kilometers in every direction. It's huge. And that's, what, that's a picture of what Jesus is talking about when he says you are the light of the world. Not just you individually, but us collectively as well as his church. We're not to be hidden away. We're meant to be visible from a great, great distance. Um, now, here's the thing. Just being the light of the world does not mean that we have control over how other people um, respond to us being light. This is kind of a preacher cliche, but I have to share it with you because it's true. Um, think about light. Every person is probably like one of two insects. You're either a, a moth or a roach. So when you flip on a light in a dark room, if you're a moth, you fly toward the light. If you're a roach, you scatter from the light. And that's true in how people respond to us. Some people, the light of Jesus shining through you, it's who you are, it's who you aspire to be, they are going to be attracted to you and attracted to Jesus through you. Other people are going to be repelled. And that's not up to us. We don't have control over that. Just because people are repelled by your witness doesn't mean you're doing it wrong. It could mean, in fact, you're doing it very right. Um, now, we, not, we always need to think about how, we're, you know, how winsome we are, how loving we are, but if we are... If our witness is really the Beatitudes, it's living the blessed life that we described last week, and people are repelled by that, that's because people were repelled by Jesus. And we are following in his footsteps. Some people will feel 
um, convicted and run away. Others will feel convicted and be attracted uh, to Jesus. So here's a question to ponder. To walk in the light or to be that light on the hill um, that Jesus says that we're, we are and commands us to be, do we have to say anything? Is it just about being a, a, like a nice person? Do we have to actually at some point open up our mouths and say something? Um, maybe you've heard this quote thrown around. It often gets attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. Preach the gospel. If necessary, use words. St. Francis never said that. It's a fake quote, but it gets, it's gotten a lot of mileage. Um, I assure you that preaching the gospel, by its definition, requires words. Um, you can't just be light of the world simply by living a certain way and hoping people work it out, hoping that a Bible sort of appears in their lap and they pick it up and read it. Like we actually do at some point, maybe not you specifically in that specific person's life, but somebody somewhere along the way has to use words to explain the hope that we have within us. Um, there's a clue to this in the very last verse that we read this morning, verse 16. Um, Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, by the way, was, the, was and is the theme verse for City Light Church. It's why we're called City Light Church. Um, and here it is. Um, this is our calling. In the same way, um, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. This is 5, uh, verse 16. By the way, I, I didn't know this until actually very recently, but the very first uh, gathering of City Light Church began in the evening at 5.15 p.m., very intentionally to call attention to this verse, because they decided 5.15, not 5.16, because that's a weird time to start anything. But it's really in reference to this theme verse. This is who we are. This is our calling. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Now, there's a two, kind of a two-step process that Jesus is implying here. Step one, you and I, we start living in the light of Jesus. We start attempting to obey his teachings, to let go of sin and pride and control, and with his help, obey all of his commands at home, at work, at school, wherever we are, on the footy field, wherever. And then people will see your good works. They'll see your life. They'll see you living like Jesus. And they will then give glory, it says, to your Father in heaven. Now, that brings us to step two. Um, the bridge between your good works, between your obedience, and their worship, their giving glory to God, the bridge is words. It's an explanation. It's telling people simply why, what motivates you, what gives you joy, what gives you hope, what gives you peace. Why is it that you don't scream and carry on at your kids? Uh, why are you generous? Why are you learning not to hold on to bitterness and, and not clap back at the people who insult you? Why is it that you don't go around having to say that you're awesome all the time, that you're, hum you're humble? Is it because you actually are awesome and you're just too, you know, too shy to say it? Is it because you took a great class? Is it because you had great parents? Well, all those things may have been true. But that's not why you walk in the light. You walk in the light because Jesus has done a miraculous work in your life. Now, how you go about explaining that is up to you. You know the person that you're talking to. But see, we're people that know that everything that we have is, something, is, is a gift from the Father. And so we, we can be generous. That's something you can say to people. 
We know that we've been forgiven so that we can forgive others. We know we've been shown mercy so we can be merciful. We know we have peace with God so we can be active peacemakers in the world. Those, those words like that are the bridge between our good works and other people, more people, giving glory to our Father in heaven, giving him the glory he deserves. And you might think, be thinking, you know, why, God? This just seems too complicated. I mean, God, can't you just, for my friend or my family member, can't you just kind of appear in a vision the way you did with Paul? Like, why does it have to be so convoluted? Why does it have to come through inconsistent, stumbling, ordinary people like us? Why me? The specific answer is, I, I don't know, like for each specific case. But I do know that the one who made the universe, the one who died for you, has said to you and me, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And that by living out the blessed life, you will have joy, and that joy will then spread to others as you introduce those people through your actions and through your words to Jesus, your living hope. Before I close, I, I want to talk about some examples of saltiness and uh, luminosity, which seems like a kind of a pretentious word, but it works. Um, what does it actually look like to be salt and light? And not just in general, but in your own situation. Um, I want to frame this by shedding light, pun intended, on a couple of myths or misconceptions about salt and light. Here's misconception number one. And they're on, they should be on the screen. Being salt and light is for Christians in public spaces and on public platforms. This, um, this first one we kind of recognize is not right because when Jesus looked at his very ordinary, very uneducated disciples on a mountainside in the middle of nowhere and said, you are the salt of the earth. I choose you to be the light of the world. These ordinary, weak, and even hated people in the world, he chose them. And, and here's what we often do with this. We work so hard in the church often to build up platforms for people who speak really well, who look good on camera, or who are really good at talking, or good at raising money. We, we want to find people who are celebrities and who are well-liked by the world. And maybe if they talk about Jesus... Other people will listen. I remember this even as a kid. I remember having this conversation with a person who was talking about a, like a, a singer who was really popular in the 80s. Um, and he was like, oh, I think he's so close to believing in Jesus. And if he believes, man, imagine all of his fans are just going to come flocking to Jesus. And, we, and that's not necessarily a bad way to think. But that's not really the spirit behind what Jesus said. He looks at you and me and ordinary people. Now people up in the, in the, on stage, and he says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And why does he do that? Why does he often so often use ordinary people like us? Because he does not want, like, at the end of the day, who gets the glory? Not us, but him. It's, I know I'm not good looking. I know I'm not a good speaker. I know I'm not this. I know I'm not that. But he is all of those things, and he gets all of the glory. So, friends, if... Being salt and light starts in your home. It starts with your own kids and your own neighbors and your, your best mates at school. It starts with just being 
humble and peaceable, not demanding your own way. And that's something anyone can do. It starts with being generous and kind. You don't need a platform to do any of those things. You just need to be a human being with the spirit of the living God inside of you. Which brings me to misconception or myth number two. Uh, being salt and light is for Christians with a good moral track record. Uh, so for every single one of the disciples who sat at Jesus' feet in this original Sermon on the Mount, uh, every single one of them would go on to deny, abandon, or betray him. Fail him. Miserably. In the flesh. And yet... 11 out of the 12 of these men would go on to literally change the world through, yes, their preaching ministry, but more than that, through their lives. Apostle Paul, he says this famously in one of his earliest letters, Book of One Thessalonians. He says, we cared so much for you that we're pleased to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you become so dear to us. That's what made Paul so precious to these churches that he planted. It's what made him so effective as a church planner. He loved the people that he was sent to deeply. He loved them deeply. And that spoke just as loud, if not louder, than the logic in his learning. It was his love for the people. They shared possessions together. They shared burdens together. They wept with each other. They rejoiced with each other, life on life. That's what made the gospel of Jesus so appealing and popular and why it spread like wildfire across the Roman world among former sinners, former enemies who had learned with God's help to love one another deeply. Last misconception number three, being salt and light is about doing real big things for Jesus. Um, we're going to see this later in the Sermon on the Mount. Doing things for Jesus is no guarantee that you belong to Jesus. You can be a missionary. You can be a, a minister, a miracle worker, a master theologian. You can throw money at every Christian cause imaginable and be on the road to hell. I mean, that's what Jesus says. Later on, we'll get there. But what makes genuine Christians stand out in the world and useful in the world isn't just what they do. It's who they are. Connected to Jesus, doing the works of Jesus because they are connected to Jesus. And it's out of the overflow of a heart being changed and made alive to love and cherish him that we do good works. I hear lots of people on, you know, that are you know, on both sides of politics say, well, if only Christians would talk more about this or we more put this on our social media, or we, we'd say this thing or do that thing or stop doing this thing, that, that people would stop leaving the church and they would come back and, 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 and get right with Jesus. And I say, you know, maybe, maybe, uh, but in reality, that what Jesus calls us to do that actually is attractive is not how, who we vote for or what brand of ethical whatever that we wear. It is this daily obedience to live and call and joy in living the blessed life. It's, it's just so simple and ordinary. We complicate it. I don't know about you, but I would rather see five faithful Christians, members of some obscure church in the back of nowhere who are committed to daily, lifelong, joy-filled obedience to Jesus for his church than a thousand Christian talking heads on Twitter. Like, that's how the world will change. 
See, you know, we... No, I won't go there. Oh, we need Christians to live faithfully in the public eye. We really do. But only those who are first committed to living the blessed life of the Beatitudes before they ever open their mouths or step into a green room. So what about you? How aware are you each day of what it means to be the salt of the earth, on the, well, on the patch of earth that you walk on? Or be the light of the world that you inhabit? What does that mean? So that people you know would see your good works, you living the blessed life, imperfectly but hungering for growth, that they would see those good works and give praise and glory to your Father in heaven because that's why you're still here. That is your purpose. That's why Jesus died for you. And here's Paul again. I know I've quoted a lot of the Bible, but we need it. Here's Paul in, in 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians, sorry. He says... And he, Jesus, died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. So I just ask you this. Are you, are you ready to no longer live for you? Are you ready to get over yourself and be poured out because you're so hungry for Jesus and the life that he died to give you? That's where it starts. That's where it starts, being salt and light, That's this hunger for him in your everyday. Let's, let's pray. Lord, thank you that you love us so much that you give us this great privilege to be um, salt and light wherever we go. We don't have to change our scenery. We don't have to add to our knowledge, although knowledge is a good thing. You've given us your spirit inside to do the work that you've called us to do, the good works that you prepared in advance for us to do. And again, not so that we would look good, not so that people would say, man, what an amazing person you are, what an amazing church you must be a part of, or, or, or this, that, and the other. But no, what an amazing God that has changed you and made you the person that you are. Lord, may that be the testimony that we have and experience in our relationships. Lord, send us out in your strength. Lord, as we come to the table today, would you remind us again of who we are and the price that was paid by Jesus to make us who we are. God, is all of grace that we've been saved. Lord, help us to believe again. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us for another message from City Light South Church. You can find out more about our church and connect with us at citylightsouth.org.au.